1: This episode of All The President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au, one of Sydney's best catering companies and now home food delivery companies in the COVID-19 crisis. The restrictions all around the nation in Australia and for our international listeners, that's very positive. They're happening all around Sydney too. They are allowing you to have more people over. They're allowing you to have your family back around. They're allowing you finally to socialize in this pandemic. You're seeing examples of it all over the world. And You know, one of those things means if you've been at home, locked away for like two months, you've forgotten how to cook for people. You've forgotten how to cook for a large scale of people, but Bella Catering haven't. So get onto their website, check out all their stuff, take the stress about catering for all of your friends and family and focus on the embraces if you're allowed. Focus on the social distancing, being in the same spaces with the people that you love. Don't focus on food. Bella Catering, have got that covered. bellacatering.com.au and now onto the show. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Ten days earlier, he had announced that he was running for an unprecedented fifth term as a local prosecutor. Bernstein asked Ruby about Gerstein. He was a Democrat, 48 years old, a World War II bomber pilot, and the biggest vote-getter in history of the state's attorney's office. Everyone loves him, Ruby said. Bernstein thumbed through a local afternoon paper. Gerstein cracks at interstate baby-scale racket, read the headline. Oh boy, Bernstein muttered to himself. The Democratic primary was scheduled for September 12. He imagined a headline for September 11. Gerstein cracks Watergate case. Another hour passed. Bernstein asked Ruby if he could reach status by car radio. He's not available just now, but he'll be calling in soon. Bernstein walked across the hall to the county registrar's office and asked the clerk for copies of all the subpoenas issued by Gerstein's office during July. She returned with an accordion file arranged by days of the month. Bernstein sorted through them. So he found one issued to Southern Bell, the local telephone company, demanding the return of all records of long distance calls billed to Bernard L. Barker or Barker Associates, his real estate firm. Another had been issued to the Republic National Bank for Barker's bank records. There were similar subpoenas to other banks and to the phone company for any and all documents and records pertaining to the other three Watergates pertaining to the other three Watergate suspects from Miami. Dardis's name was on each. Bernstein took notes on all the subpoenas in the file which bore Dardis's name and then called Woodward from a payphone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. (laughs) Joining me today is a Philadelphia-born, Austin-based writer. He writes for the awesome, and and pretty new, or at least new for me, who writes for the re-emerging Fangoria magazine. God bless Phil and the team that brought that back from the dead. Uh, The Dark Moon Digest, and today I was looking through some of his stuff, especially a beautiful melancholic uh, story that he was writing about potentially the end of Rocky Balboa in Creed 2 in 1600 somewhat articles that he published between 2013 (laughs) and like 2018 with Birth Movies Death. Uh, He's also just one of my favorite no bullshit people on Twitter, and I thoroughly enjoy his candor. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show and his second appearance on a one heat minute production, Jacob Qnight Jacob, thank you so much for doing this.
2: Thank you for having me. I was really excited when you invited me, especially after, you know, well, I was a little surprised, frankly, because I, I wasn't sure if I got too weird with Travis <laughs> on the talking about, like, Charles Manson conspiracy theories and stuff
1: no no the, the weirder you got the more I thought God he needs to be on this show that's that's the kind of that's <laughs> the kind of productions that we perform no look i I um I am in the very fortuitous position a producer of in- inherent vice uh, increment vice rather to hear literally every single episode before anyone else hears them and tinker with them and and kind of give them their their sound that people are enjoying so much which I'm really Grateful for, and so I was hearing the show and I was like, "God, Jacob, we haven't had a chat yet. That's a that's a person I'd love to talk to." And it was really, <laughs> ref- it was really refreshing to be reading some of your stuff, and then especially coming up to the last couple of weeks. Normally, I'd be saying like, "How are you doing? What is your relationship with the movie?" But um, I, I think it's probably best we started talking about it off air, and I was like, "No, no, no, Jacob, stop. We're going to talk about this again. Let's talk about your relationship with all the presidents, men but via Zodiac, because I think that that's a, a an, an interesting little little tale
2: uh yeah i mean i was like you said telling you kind of off the air is that i i watched we're all in quarantine now and have infinite amounts of time and so i was just like either right after you asked me to be on or whatever i was like oh i guess i'll watch zodiac now and i was just watching it and realized and i always kind of had this in the back of my head um even when i saw it in theaters just that it's like this really is Fincher doing uh, Alan Pula and doing uh, all the president's men with serial killers Um, just in terms of how detailed it is in terms of a procedural and also just the kind of uh, it really is going for the same uh, dopamine kind of rush uh, that that comes with uh, chasing the truth and chasing something that has potentially been hidden here not in terms of like power structures, it's just one elusive, uh, insane individual. Uh, but like just the way that they, uh, you know, everyone from the, the cops to, you know, uh, Graysmiths and, uh, just uh, chasing the, the, the identity of the Zodiac. And then the idea that you just, some secrets are unknowable. Um, and there's a bit of that to, the, to all the president's men, that I also realized I'm revisiting it this time is that I had never thought about the fact that, like, the movie literally ends with them losing in a weird way <laughs> and then getting ready to basically take it to Nixon because they know that they're right. Like, they're obsessed with the idea of knowing the truth and, and, and uncovering it and, and uh, bringing it to the American people. But, I mean, they lose in the end. That's kind of the interesting (laughs) part about all the the president's men. It's about them getting had a little bit by Richard Nixon and everything. And then, the, the, you know, that's that final speech by Ben Bradley where he basically goes, well, you better not fuck this up now. (laughs) And it's just (laughs) Ben clacking away, you know, while uh, Richard Nixon is...
1: In a movie of Hall Hall of Fame pep talks. That final pep talk, yeah, is like, you know, go home, rest, take a bath, fifteen minutes, then get your asses back into gear.
2: It's not like yeah, any, and it's, it's not,
1: it's like, not like anything's riding on this. It's like the future, yeah, the future of the constitution. Uh, so yeah, it's it's, but you're right. That's one thing. Just before we even dive into a I minute mean, that I hadn't necessarily thought about is that we kind of there's something so sort of calculated, and maybe a, I love how you put it. It's like a dopamine rush of that you are, you are on the downhill slope, you know you're you're cresting the wave, like you're standing. You know, for anyone who's ever caught a wave in their life, had the blessing to catch a wave, or you know, maybe it's skiing or something like that. But I'll use the wave analogy because I'm in Australia and I'm in Sydney and I grew up by the grew up by the ocean. It's like if you ever learn how to stand up on a board or even on a on a boogie board, you get to a wave, you paddle, and when you realize the wave has got you, there is a rush like oh shit, it's got me. Like now I have to do something, whether it's stand up, sit down, whatever, you know, whatever you're doing, you're leaning into it. If you're on a a bodyboard or if you're standing up, you're like, you're getting ready to pounce up and you're like, oh, this thing's got me. And I think that that's that's where this movie ends is it crests with you not really knowing how the wave exactly crunches, not exactly how they navigate it. It's kind of all, it's just the the work is being put in, but they are very much in that moment of, of elevation where it's like, they've just been caught. But yeah, literally the last, you know, 20 minutes of procedural of this movie is grinding through like did we fuck this up and that is yeah. satisfying in this such yeah. weird way well, much in the same way as Zodiac has those satisfying elements
2: well it's like you have that weird like that's what's so idiosyncratic about Zodiac's ending too is that you literally end in the movie is that you end the movie in a diner like the big reveal is uh, you know Graysmith and Toski sitting at a diner together and him outlining the Zodiac path to his original, like how he might've known them, but he's doing it with salt and pepper shakers and it's Tosky looking at and going, shit, you're right. And that's it. But there's nothing else. Like they don't, catch <laughs> him. they don't bring him to justice or anything. It's just them realizing that like all of this hard work paid off, but really to what end, at least all the president's men, doesn't ha- it has uh cuz you know the the movie came out what like 2 years after this all happened essentially like it's a pretty short window of time extremely short uh,
1: extremely short so from the yeah, time that they're actually like, it's this is this has been seen at the end of 1975 Roger Ebert's review is filed yeah. on you know, and this is how, you know, a lot of us film geeks, we go to the master, right? So you go to the master's review is filed on the 1st of January, 1976. It competes in the 76 Oscars. Uh, it's, it's you know, it's it's right there. It was like it's made in 76. People are seeing it then. It, it runs through, it runs the full gamut from there. But it, they're making it in 75 and Redford actively is producing it along the time that they're making it in the book is actually published in 74 or 70, like, like 73, 74. Yeah. So, you know, it's all extremely close considering the magnitude of what they're having to translate.
2: You're basically two years after the actual hearing. Yes. Uh, essentially. Yes. Um, so, like, that's kind of the... I, I hesitate to call it a cheat, but, like, it's the minor cheat that Pakula is playing with is that he knows that this is all... Fresh in the audience's mind So you can lose in the end But you know uh, You know that the, the, the reporters end up winning The Washington Post wins yes. um, It's just A matter of like getting there um, Which I always found Incredibly interesting too Because it reminds me a lot I guess not to jump too far off the defense um, But like It reminds me a lot of Clute In terms of how Clute and with, a, with an interview, yes. So where you literally sit there and it's just Jane Fonda on the couch and you sit there and you know, this mystery's been solved, they figured it out, Sutherland has followed his path of obsession kind of into the underworld. But like at the end of the day, uh, there's no real healing done or anything. Like she's still gonna play this same role. She's gonna go out and deal with these same kind of traumas and everything and she has to be as, you know, uh, her character puts it, you know, the greatest actress and the greatest fuck of all time. Um, like reality is still reality. And that's always what is amazing about the movies is that he never lies to you. No. Like he's still like, <laughs> these guys might've won, but it's still fucked up.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, we're, we're going to get to, um, Pakula and lies and that sort of naked, candor of cynicism that is in his work, especially his paranoia trilogies. But I want to grab a couple of things that you said, you know, you talked about paranoia and weirdness and the potential attraction that we're having, you know, uh, uh to, to talking to one another. And you talked about, um, you know, just outlining with, uh, you know, salt and pepper shakers—the finale of the movie—and it's just one thing that we haven't talked about yet. But it's just a wonderful scene, and it's very much ties into both the weird and the conspiratorial elements, and just the obviousness of proximity. Is there's that wonderful scene in Oliver Stone's JFK where Kevin Costner takes his crew in New Orleans. Down the road from where Leah Harvey Oswald worked and what when he was in New Orleans and, and worked and was and handing out pamphlets on the side of the street. And he takes them down into like a quadrangle, like this, this, you know, little courtyard, if you like, that's in between four buildings. He's yeah. like right then at the time, when he's on the corner, this is the CEO <laughs> this is the FBI, and it's this moment of like, there's something so powerful. And I know that like Finch is doing it by proxy, but there's something so powerful about like If there's a guy on the corner down there handing out communist pamphlets and we're worried about him, do you reckon the CIA and the FBI and the the you know the New Orleans Department of Justice, which are literally just down the road, do you reckon they don't know about that guy or don't know about what's happening on the corner of the streets? Like their people couldn't escape it if they tried. They walking to work, they're catching a bus, they're driving out, they're seeing commotions on the street. Like do you think they don't know what's going on? And I, I think that some of those small moments have this like magnifying power that – is makes everything really real and makes it really candid. It's like, do you think these people don't know what's happening down their street? Like these people, who their whole job is to know what's happening. You think they don't know what's happening on their street corner? That's the place they actually know what's happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's weird because that's one of the one of Stone's less, uh, let's say, melodramatic or bombastic <laughs> yes. illustrations of this is because he almost. He fleshes that idea to its most extreme with Nixon, um, in which in that very you know allegedly fictionalized uh, moment where he places Richard Nixon in a room with oil men and basically all these people who want to see Kennedy dead, and yes. it's with his way of literalizing and being like, you know, everybody around Nixon wanted him to die, and like, there's <laughs> no way that you that he didn't. No, at least a little bit that this conspiracy was happening around him um that i always find i love those two movies just how they work as like uh, brother sister kind of uh, companion pieces together uh, i and I, I struggle with which one i actually prefer
1: <laughs> I, I i don't watch nixon as much for me the, there's something about i don't know there's a hypnotic energy to jfk that like if you if you've watched three minutes you're watching all two and a half hours like it's over oh, <laughs> it's, yeah. one, it's one of those that kind of gets you whereas you know nixon has that amazing score it's one of the best most underrated john williams scores ever um sure. it's a really crazy outlandish performance by hoffman but it's like like you said i think it's bombastic and it becomes a little bit more um anarchistic in the whole way that he constructs it but like that's it suits the man. Like, it suits this, you know, demure, nervous guy to have this, like, crazy inner monologue that is, like, writ large into, like, all the characters and plays and sort of like that to become Shakespearean. Yeah. And he's playing around with that. He likes that. Well,
2: and all that, all those, like, black and white, uh, almost Sirky and flashbacks. Yes. So like his childhood and stuff and how, you know, his mother, you know, played by Mary Steenburgen is talking in nothing but like these and thou's And like, <laughs> it's such a rich, huge, almost like it borders on parody at certain times. And it's kind of, it, to me, that's one of the things that I, I'm always amazed by it is that it, it, it's the movie of his that threatens to tip over the edge of basically any men other than natural born killers. I guess I should say, is that threatens to tip over the edge at any moment um, because it, it's so big and it's so weird and it, it meshes so many different styles together. But like, I don't know, that might be my favorite of his. I, I go back and forth.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, he's Oliver Stone is like this weird filmmaker. All the best great filmmakers have a touch of weirdness. But he, his growth is, um, and revisiting his films, I find, there's none that ever really consistently hold a place in your mind as being better than the next or like completely like don't grow with you. Like I find like they definitely do. And for me, there's a few of his seminal films which like grow um, just, leaps and bounds and you know jfk is one of them obviously platoon is 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 best but like wall street in contemporary times was just as powerful in 2008 as a precursor (laughs) to the like existing you know financial crisis and um i love watching any given sunday whenever sports drama is happening in our real lives because i'm just like yeah like these people they treat these bodies like meat it's such an underrated movie obviously i'm a pacino guy I'm the guy who hosted one heat minute. So you know, um, you know, Pacino is, I think, unbelievable in that movie, and Jamie Foxx is maybe one of his best ever. So yeah, it's it's, it, yeah, it's pretty pretty stunning stuff.
2: Oh, it was crazy. I mean, there you have a year or two where you have Oliver Stone making any given Sunday, and then you have Michael Mann making. I guess to bring it. Uh a good way to bring it full circle back to all the president's men but to me in 99 you get michael mann's version of all the president's men with the insider
1: absolutely that's
2: the closest thing that he's that's another movie about just pouring over documents and again i guess i'll just reuse that the idea of like the dopamine rush of, of chasing the truth and having it suppressed from you and like because that's one of the great uh movies about journalism and and uh, and one of the great uh, Pacino performances of all time, man. Like I love the, I, I'll never forget seeing the Insider in the theaters on first run for the first time, and just being like, "Holy fucking shit!" Like this is what movies are <laughs> like, supposed to feel like.
1: Yeah, he's bro. he's mag he's magnificent in that movie. It's so such a yeah. like it's a, it's one of those years where like the Russell Crowe performance is so. Like it's the magisterial one. It's the big. It's the big Oscar one. You know, he puts he stacks on the weight. He's doing the accent, like especially when you go tit for tat, LA Confidential, where he's this young buck, young pup, like you know, you know, bulking. Well,
2: you're pre gladiator too. Yeah,
1: pre gladiator is this bullocking thing. You know, uh, you know, he looks so tough, and you think, God, this guy's the, this guy's the toughest Hollywood screen tough guy in decades. You're like, this guy's really good. He's got a touch of the bronzen's about him, and then he stacks on all the weight and becomes a frustrated angry you know golfing school teacher um a scientist and school teacher and and he makes the transition so beautifully and then you get Pacino's Lowell Bergman is just outstanding he's you know Lowell Bergman much like Carl Bernstein they've got that little bit of radical that deeply cynical um, um intuitive and just uncompromising streak it's so good and yeah like that's that's when people fantasy cast the older president's men and they're like well, could pacino have done you know the bernstein role and you're like yes he could have but he's much better yeah. as he much he, he's much better as the older bernstein slash lol bergman character because i don't know i like him with his miles in especially in the insider you know making phone calls in the ocean screaming at his colleagues <laughs> swearing yeah. at swearing at hotel staff you know Reading the paper in bed with his kids, you know he's you know going along in a blindfold at the beginning of the film. Yeah, it's pretty pretty damn masterful.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a real true American epic, uh, and very paranoid as well. Very. The bullet in the mailbox scene will always be Oof. one of the craziest things that I've ever seen.
1: That is a that is a a deeply paranoid moment. Now, from that paranoid moment to something less paranoid. A moment of this film the 45th minute which i've let you in on is one of the only scenes that still remained pretty much in its whole form from a nora efron and carl bernstein adapted part of the all the president's men script and it is in the office of ned Beatty's dardis uh, mr Tardis, and i i and the, the secretary, only noticed, only known as Dardis' secretary, played by Polly Holiday, who I'm calling like the nurse ratchet of secretaries. Like once she did this, she broke the mold of all secretaries in movies because of uh, her ball busting with Dustin Hoffman. It's a great little scene. He's been frustrated to death. And now we've arrived at the moment where he does a little bit of cheeky subterfuge, as a wily reporter should and uh, gets her out of the way <laughs> so that he can get into this guy's yeah. office so let's have a watch of that scene now and then we can come back and take a take a run from one american epic as you described in the insider to another and uh talk about the great alan the
0: and please tell mr Dardis that he doesn't want to be late for his six thirty appointment yes i will thank you Mr. Darda's office. Mr. Hartinson over the county clerk's office. I beg your op- pardon? Martinson over the county clerk's office. There are some records here that is wanted right away. Can you come over and get him? We're closing. Uh, well, yes, I'll be right over. be easier too wouldn't it all right uh hold it uh what all right yeah, shoot.
1: Well, can i help you in some way yeah i'm carl bernstein i've been waiting here since i you- the agony of a minute you get to just when you get to see the incredibly underrated character titan that is ned Beatty, who can play otis as well as he can play sleazy floridian lawyer dardis um it's he, he, can you wait outside we're gonna have to wait outside unfortunately but it's uh here we are
2: yeah it's, uh what is that his one of two scenes in this movie one is scene like one of one that
1: da- is one is of one. Just one i one thought
2: he shows up, I thought he showed up later briefly no you might i actually think you're right it is one but i always like every time i watch this movie i like to imagine that it's his corrupt sheriff from white lightning that somehow <laughs> managed to Climb the rope and uh, make his way up to some kind of form of respectable government as opposed to just executing uh, bootleggers <laughs> the, 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 uh, backwoods.
1: <laughs> Look, everyone's got to clean up. Sometimes you've got to get out of executing people in the backwoods and become a Florida lawyer. I, I don't think that that's an unusual story. <laughs> we wouldn't be breaking new ground.
2: <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like I I don't understand why you would execute a bunch of bootleggers. Otherwise, like there's gotta be a ladder climbing, like.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so funny! That's so funny. But here he is, and and the lovely Polly Holiday is the great, you know, the most like passive aggressive has a dictionary face. It is hers. It's just wonderful.
2: Yeah. No, she's great. Uh, but this is such an, uh, an interesting little character moment because um, I think it speaks to a couple different things. Uh, a uh, you, you have Carl Bernstein who's you know Dustin Hoffman in this movie who uh, let's say is a bit wilier than uh, Woodward Yes um, like he,
1: he's got some mols he's, he's, okay. seen, he's seen, he's seen do, he knows how to bend the rules a little.
2: Well it's it's all about entry for him right because he kind of does it later uh to where he worms his way. there's a great scene where he worms his way into a house later to talk to a a, a key uh witness by basically just asking for a cigarette just being yes. like hey do you, do you have a smoke do you have a match thanks uh and he just proceeds to have the conversation for bernstein it's it's all about um how do you engage like how do you, and how do you find the way to engage, which I, I find interesting to where you, you have uh, Bob Woodward uh, sitting at a desk, he's much more traditional, obviously it comes from kind of his like lack of experience, maybe a little bit, yes. still sitting at the desk. He's pounded like there's that whole extended sequence of him pounding the phones and everything, but his most idiosyncratic kind of thing that he brings to the table is obviously deep throat. Yes. It's like that's, that's almost the weirdest that you see him get. Um, uh, so I, I like how this scene sort of illustrates uh, the difference of approach between the two, or at least the skill set that each one
1: brings. 100%. I think uh, we haven't framed it in the way that you have yet in the discussions we've had so far, which is simply that like the point of entry is so key for him because he feels like once I get you engaged in the conversation, even if you don't want to talk to me, you're going to tell me something. Like he he, and and he's like, I don't care if I burn a friendship, I don't care. Whereas Woodward's got that ability to be more, especially later as the movie grows, he's got more subtlety in his approach where he just sort of like his proximity to you, they just start spilling the beans. Whereas Bernstein knows that they kind of he's great, a bit more grating, they don't really want to talk to him. And so, and he'll just extract information. But I think they both especially at this stage of the movie, it's a great comparison moment because you're so, we're still quite early in the film, is they both get better at flexing the muscles that they don't have at the beginning of the film because they work together. So they both get better at like yeah. that great scene. It is 99% of it is him getting in that door, but whole shit does he do a great job of slowing down the way that he speaks, just talking loosely like not asking any direct questions you know Oh, i wouldn't mind a cup of coffee oh yeah biscuit would be great oh, can i use your bathroom <laughs> like he's just so great at like dancing around what the topic is and he just starts dragging all that information out whereas here he's in his most like i'm going to get in this room i'm going to say i'm from the post i want the information so let's do this all right like he's, he's not mucking around with this yeah. lawyer he's been much
2: more direct Sort of also how, like, because engagement is always sort of Bernstein's, uh, let's say, modus operandi or whatever, in that, like, uh, early, even the way that you see uh, Bob Woodward and him interact is literally him taking his writing <laughs> yes. and rewriting it and then being confronted by it. And there's that great line where he goes, uh, you know, Bob says to him, I don't mind what you did, I just don't like the way that you did it. Yes. And it's, it, that's another really like kind of great meeting of minds moments where it's just sort of, they get each other now. Where it's like, okay, well there's the lie. This is where I can't (laughs) really step over. And then later, um, you know, he kind of does it again when he confirmed, Carl does, when he confirms his last source where he's trying to get that last source confirmed. He's trying to get it confirmed, he's trying to get it confirmed, and he finally just goes, okay, okay, okay. You're obviously not gonna tell me anything. Let me count to 10, (laughs) and if I finish, and you don't say anything, then we're all good. We're good. That's confirmed. And I can go to Ben uh, Bradley with this and he just counts to 10. And it's one of the great suspenseful scenes in the movement because he counts and you, the way Hoffman plays it, because I mean, this is for my money. I don't know if it's his best performance. Uh, it's very close. But it ranks it's it's in the well, like,
1: it's in the conversation. I think that that's that's what happens with these guys. Is the more I watch this movie, and obviously I'm extremely biased, but the and much much the same as I am with Heat, being Pacino and Denera's some of their best performances in their entire career, um, is and and really everyone in that movie. But um, everyone in this movie is just he's just knocking it out of the park and he's so good and they're yeah. so good together. That's the thing, two Titans in the seventies. It's the same as his other probably, you know, quintessential performances of entire career. Two of them really like marathon man where he's across from Olivier and then Razzo Rizzo, you know, across from John Voight at the time that John Voigt's this huge entity and, and he gets to just like bounce off of him. And it's just an incredible, you know, for Midnight Cowboy, it's just that I think that, you know, when he's up against someone else who's so formidable at the time, they're, they're sort of, those massive performances in his career that you go, oh, wow, that's, that's got to be on the list.
2: Yeah. Um, I like the way that he plays the moment where he counts to 10 because all of the suspense comes from Hoffman's like eyes and his kind of jittery, like you're just like, he's almost like he gets to eight and it's almost like, please fuck, just let me get two more numbers (laughs) out of my mouth. Um, and you can see it in his face like everything about him yes um which is just it's really incredible uh where again he i wonder how much of this like like you say too that they're playing off of two titans but i mean i would like to talk at least a little bit about papula himself and how he's one of the great uh, actors, directors, maybe of all time, easily. Because it's, but
1: I mean, like, how does yeah. how does Ned Beatty walk in for like two days? What's he doing? Like, surely sure. he's it's the middle of the seventies. This is the guy's you're about well, to, you know, like
2: it, it probably helped. Uh, uh, you know, at the time, because Pacula obviously was a producer um, for years before he became a director. You know, he was an assistant at Paramount for years and years. Um, and that's kind of how he got his foot in the door. So you wonder how much of this and like how much of this comes from just his relationships of and everybody respected him at this point. Like, like uh, Alan Papula was like a name by the time he was making, uh, uh, you know, all the President's Men, simply because like I he mean, produced he produced To Kill a Mockingbird, and yes. he, uh, you know, he discovered. Robert Redford, he put Robert Redford in his first movie, Yes, you know, so, like, uh, getting Ned Beatty probably wasn't that wasn't difficult odd. when he's making, you know, Alan Sargent, uh, Burt Reynolds movies at the same time, <laughs> so, go on to those movies, I love them to death, but, like, they probably pay a little less than this major uh, Hollywood Alan Pakula production. <laughs> Come
1: on for a day, do us a solid. Yeah. It's one day. But it's also, one. It's one day with Dustin. You, you'll like it.
2: Yeah, you just get to do one scene with Dustin Hoffman. We'll pay your rate. It'll be fun. Um, but there's this. Uh, there's this great documentary that um, is coming out, I believe, uh, in one of the, the the new like online theatrical models here in the next few months, and it played at AFI last year called uh, "Going for Truth." The Alan—it's all about Alan Takula. It's oh literally just an entire profile. That's that's nothing but it's two hours of like this murderer's row of people talking about Takula. Everybody from Meryl Streep to Steven Soderbergh to Dustin Hoffman, like all of these people, and they all talk about uh, why people wanted to work with him so much. Uh, Is because he was almost like a New York uh, psychiatrist in a way, is that he would just literally sit there and he would talk to actors and he would talk to even subjects. Like, um, you know, there's a great story with Bob Woodward where he was talking about how when Piccola was doing, uh, you know, background for all the presidents men and, and studying Bed Bradley and studying the post and everything, is that he literally went uh, to Bob and was like. All right, so, you know, just tell me a little bit about your childhood. Tell me about growing up, like, how was your, you know, your mother and father's relationship? And, you know, Bob Woodward tells the story about how he told Pakula that, you know, one of the great memories of his childhood was his, um, his mother had a breakdown and and went into an into an institution. And as a a child, he didn't understand what was happening because his dad was basically hiding the truth. And this was his first moment as like a reporter is that while his mom was in this institution, he rooted around the house looking for clues, as he called it, as like an eight, nine year old boy and found a letter that was literally written uh, between his parents um, saying how they were going to get a divorce. And then, once his mom was released from an institution, it basically got revealed to him that she was having an affair with his father's best friend. They were going to get married together and go off. And this strife within the marriage is what um, uh, basically caused her to have this kind of breakdown. And, like, none of that is in all the <laughs> president's men. None. But it's something that he used to basically understand Robert Redford's character and transition it so that it's almost like how, what caused this guy throughout the entirety of his life to be driven to find, you know, the truth, to find that, 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 that notion of truth, at least.
1: Inquisition um, is second. Inquisition is second nature, man. That's such a crazy like level of depth to get to because it's like you wonder why Redford's Woodward is so effortlessly inquisitive, and is so great at catching yeah. a hook. Like he's he's like he's never a fish who just nibbles on a bit of bait. He's like every bit of bait gets a bite. <laughs> you know, he's just like he just yeah. naturally inquisitive. Um, yeah, I mean, wow. Talk about dedication to. Like, And he would know that innately just in every choice so that he's coaching every actor to that choice. You need to be more inquisitive in this moment. You need to ask why in this moment. You need to ask why again in this moment for someone like that. That's crazy. Sounds like a phenomenal film. And when did did it play? You said at AFI last year?
2: Yeah, it played AFI last year. I don't know who's releasing it. I would have to look that up. But it's going to be one of those virtual... Uh, VOD releases to where like if you buy a ticket you can support theaters and stuff Right. Um, in the near future. It's called Going for Truth. Yeah. Uh, Alan J. Pakula. Um, but to your point about talking to actors and stuff, there are a lot of anecdotes in there to where like they would say um, uh, that he wouldn't give them any direction to where like uh, there's that great I don't want to spoil <laughs> presumed innocence for anybody despite <laughs> it being a 30-year-old movie and also you know, a New York Times bestseller and everything. But like, there's that great... Um, you've seen it, correct?
1: Of course, I love presumed innocence. I absolutely do it.
2: Uh, okay. So, I didn't want to ruin it for you either, but there's <laughs> the moment at the end with Bonnie Bedelia where she confesses. She has that monologue to Harrison Ford, and she reveals in the documentary that it was all done in one take. She didn't. She only did it one time, and it was just because Pakula yeah. basically said, <laughs> "All right, yeah, that we we got this. Like, we understand what's happening here. Like, I'm just going to set the camera up, and we're just we're going to do it." And like they, that's how they said that he operated with actors. Is that it was just because dating all the way back to like his days uh, as a Yale uh, drama student is that a, 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 apparently his thesis at Yale was um, the psychology of drama is that that was what he was always fascinated by is like, what drives these people what drives them to find out not only like, the truth around them, but like the truth about themselves, essentially, which I find incredibly fascinating. And like, because it's when you take that notion into account and then start thinking about his filmography as a whole, it's literally just a collection of people looking for the truth and like that it, it's pretty phenomenal. And you also wonder if like maybe all the president's men is kind of like the, uh, Rosetta stone almost of being like, well, here's the literalization. Of yeah. That. This is the literalization.
1: It, here's all the refractions. Everything else is the, the not quite, the, you know, the, the, not, not quite as, um, Oh, oh, sorry. Not requiring as much clarity because when you're anchored to the to a truth, like literally in the uh, you know a, a docudrama, yeah. um, if you like, you know he he doesn't have the wiggle room that he has in Parallax. You know he knows about shoe leather and he knows about paranoia from Clute and Parallax, yeah. and he knows about you know systems of power that have kind of like you know omnisciently menacing. But you know what I think you know, I and to take it back full circle you know obviously it could not be a show that i'm ever talking about where that somehow doesn't come back to michael mann so on one heat minute i was very blessed to talk to um, a, a second unit or a second assistant director sorry and a first ad as well by the name of tom king he's been he's part of the crew on uh, that one you know best best director with um Kramer versus Kramer and he talked about you know you just talked about Streep and Hoffman and that's kind of that you know Meryl Streep and Hoffman worked together on Kramer versus Kramer and she worked with uh, with Miss on um, Sophie's Choice and obviously Hoffman is in this film the President's Men and one of the things he talked about was just like and I imagine this being different modes he's like Meryl you know Tom King used to say about Dustin he's like Dustin would take six takes to warm up. That's just how he was. He was playful. He'd kind of be moving into it, and about six takes in, he'd start to get it and he'd go for it, and then they'd start working. And he's like, and if it had to go up to 20 takes, that's how far it went. Like, we just give lots of options and we would go through. And he was talking about Merrill, and he's like, Merrill did it in three. Mary, meryl had it yeah. nailed in three but she'd always be there as an actor across from her partner like working through their shit to make sure that they'd ha- they, they had it like and be there on the other side of the coverage to make sure that they had it and so it's super interesting to hear that a sort of a first-hand account of what it's like to work with those actors and then to hear pakula's flow because obviously all of these titanic forces that he works with in his career are all very different like they are di- like you know to work with Beatty and then Sutherland and Fonda and then Redford and Hoffman and Merrill like, and Harrison Ford. It's like Dennehy, like who's just awesome. You know, may he rest in peace. Like that, especially in Presumed Innocent, he's, no one does. I'm a corrupt cop suit better than Dennehy in almost yeah. any, in any movie. Um, but like, that's the, that's the kind of brilliance um, or, you know, corrupt what is district attorney at the time? I think it is. Um But yeah, I think that that's like, that must be his mastery because to, to rest the whole, like the pinnacle scene of the whole movie on one take just seems like some Clint Eastwood shit, but you know, but, but the cooler is like, you know, like uh, Clint's famous for like two takes and we're out. Okay, cool. I'm done. Um But yeah, the just doesn't seem like that guy. seems like the guy who would do the takes he needed to get what he needed to get and then move on.
2: Yeah, where he's not quite like Lumet, who does uh,
1: seventy or you know,
2: there's a famous, that 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 famous story about Dog Day Afternoon, where he made Pacino do the the one like hostage phone call like thirty times, yeah. until he's literally sweating and exhausted on the floor. Like, yeah, he's not that guy either. Um, there's some, uh, I mean, not to keep hyping this doc up, but there's also some great Meryl Streep shade uh, toss by her, just basically about her own roles, to where like she's like one of the most hilarious people to talk to hear talk about her own work is because she's like, yeah, like some generations like uh, they, they they love my work in Sophie's Choice, and then other generations they're like, oh yeah, the devil re- wears Prada, Prada, like a bunch of young girls love that, and she goes, I don't know, <laughs> and, like literally throws her arms up in the air, and you're like, all right. <laughs>
1: well that's a that's a great one to hype up because you know this i talk a lot on this show and have talked we've talked around it with the different guests around the alchemy of all the different elements and even in the scene that we're talking about you know polly holiday's tiny little role she's so important in the movie when it comes to hoffman she's like another little obstacle that he has to get over this like little totem of bureaucracy but you get like like these scenes and these huge personalities and huge actors and the cooler is a, a director that like seems to just harness them effortlessly. Like no one's ever like, he's the, he's not the guy that's yelling. He's just very deliberate. He knows exactly what he wants and just seems to get the phenomenal f- performances out. And all of his peers admire the shit out of him. So it's nice to actually wax a little bit lyrical about something. That's a bit of a retrospective that honors him and just shows what his influence is. Cause he doesn't much the same as Michael Mann and particularly Malik early on, because he only made like really four films in a short period of time. It's like, it took, it took, they're not held in the same conversation necessarily as some of those peers that came out of you know that new Hollywood era like you know Sussese's and Coppolas and De Palmas and and um, Lucas at the time they didn't they weren't elevated into that echelon yet they were all kind of second tier whereas Pakula, like you know he should be he should be celebrated and so it's cool that he's getting getting his dues.
2: I wonder. Uh, how much of that has to do with, um, his movies having, they almost exist more, even though like, obviously, you know, you mentioned Coppola, like Coppola made the Godfathers for for Paramount and, and, yes. and the conversation for Paramount. Like he was obviously a studio guy before he went in his own kind of zoetrope way and everything. But like, even those movies were like. Borderline experimental films that scared the shit out of the studios. Like they wanted to fucking fire Coppola like half (laughs) the time. Um, And like Lucas, you know, there's that that famous story about you know he made Star Wars, showed it to to De Palma and Spielberg, and De Palma like berated him (laughs) into oblivion. Just basically being like, what? Why is what is going on? Like, what are these movies? What's happening here? And like even like wrote you know the crawl for him and everything. Um, But where I'm going with this is that Maybe uh, Pakula's movies Feel in their Weird way more commercial Than he, those yeah. like he was working And like coming from The studio system like Even as like a young man out of like Yale uh, drama school And going straight to being like a Paramount uh, Assistant and everything like like He navigated the The, the biggest uh production ladder that there was in hollywood at the time you know back when paramount was making movies with brando and fucking blake edwards and stuff (laughs) that's who that's who he learned to basically be around and operate around and you wonder if that's part of why maybe his movies i think it's a two-pronged thing is that maybe that's part of why his movies aren't talked about as being uh, uh, this part of like radical New Hollywood, or maybe not talked in, in the same kind of radical language as like a Coppola or a Lucas, or certainly not a De Palma, um, but like that, and like like the idea that like uh, he's a journeyman in, yes. in in the truest sense. Like like you don't like you watch a Coppola movie, and you're like, this is a Coppola. You watch the De Palma movie, and well, you're certainly like, well, this is De Palma. <laughs> um, you even watch the George Lucas movie. I mean, obviously, because he he's making Star Wars and shit. Uh, but, like, um, you, like, Fakula was so intent on not repeating himself um, to where, like, you know, uh, y- you watch Clute. And outside of, like, Willis's involvement, there's not a whole lot of similarity between Clute and all the President's men. And there's certainly not a whole lot of similarity between the sterile cuckoo and clute and, and then the parallax view and all the president's men. Outside the paranoia, I think the closest analog to Pakula in a weird way is Frankenheimer. Uh, to where like, yes. they were both these like industry journeymen who were just sturdy. They showed up, they did the thing that and they that- wanted to do and but they make they some they were still artists
1: at make, the time. Make some stone cold classics too that make money. Like like look at Frank and I yeah. Frank and I'm I's Ronin. You're like that's a monster movie and it's great and it's revisitable but it's also a deeply a genre movie. That doesn't that doesn't well. it doesn't discount from its art. it, it doesn't discount from its art cuz ultimately it's a heist, you know, it's a heist film, you know, you can say that of heat as well, but it's like one of the great car chases, like the drama, the tension, the tone, like there's a guy that's turning what could absolutely just be trash into this really elevated piece of cinema. Like it's, you know, in that classical, that great Tony Scott quote of like, he doesn't make action movies, he makes action films. Like that's what I think of when I think of things like Ronan and and again, that the thriller, it's not just a popcorn thriller with Pakula. It's very artistic and intent and dramatically true and yeah, really, really great. Well,
2: in a strange way, they're also they're making genre movies, but they're intellectuals making genre movies and their uh, distrust of authority, let's yes. say, kind of comes from the same place because like, you have a guy like Frankenheimer, like the, the strains of paranoia in something like The Manchurian Candidate yes. Seven Days in May or Seconds are directly, it's uh, the, the, the same DNA as the stuff that's in clue parallax view uh, all the president's men even all the way up through stuff like the pelican brief. Yes. And again that's another interesting thing is that like you know he uh, Pakula is importing all of this paranoia the 70s paranoia into 90s John Grisham adaptation. Yes. like that's that there's some there's an interesting balance between the commercial and the artistic brains kind of happening there. To where again? It goes back to his days as a producer. It's like okay, well, clearly, like people are going to go see this Grisham thing, but like let's make it more than the airport novel. It clearly is, you know. <laughs> yes. um, and it's the same way how like Frankenheimer could infiltrate canon Films uh, and make um, uh, that movie with Roy Scheider, Fifty Two Pickup. Yes. To where it's like a really God, I haven't C seen that, that I haven't seen LR that.
1: 20- I haven't seen that in about 20 years.
2: Yeah, it's great. But here he is making, a, he's making an Elmore Leonard adaptation on Canon Films' terms, and uh, it's one of the great, weird, uh, comparable uh, uh, titles because you know Canon made uh, 52 Pickup twice. They made 52 <laughs> Pickup with Frankenheimer, and then they made the Rock Hudson, Robert Mitchum adaptation Uh, The Ambassador, and you look at it, it's a great study in contrast because you sit there and you go, okay, well, this is what happens when like a genuine intellectual workman applies his his craft to this story, and then there's this other one that's really boring. So like, (laughs) um, and like imagine if like, uh, I'm trying to think of like who a 90s journeyman in like the early, early 90s could have been, who could have directed. Uh, the Pelican Brief instead. But, like, imagine that that just directed uh, by, like, an, an Or, you know what? As, even though I like these movies, like, I really like the Schumacher movies, like, uh, A Time to Kill or The yes. Client. But like, even compare The Pelican Brief to A Time to Kill or The Client, and you sit there and you go, well, this is doing a distinctly different thing than the, than the guy who's going to make the, the Batman movies with the nipples. <laughs> so, like, it's just... it, it it's, it's interesting to watch a real artist navigate that uh, commercial sandbox, let's say, or play in it.
1: Well, I, I don't think if there's a better way to end this show than we've come full circle. We've talked about... Pakula and finally getting his justice we've talked about Frankenheimer we've talked about artists elevating things and we've also talked about bat nipples Jacob Knight yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes it's been a treat talking to you um, where can people find you? Rubella is the best place for folks to find you
2: Rubella right now is where folks can find me every Friday I have either my original Outlook column which covers kind of the history of exploitation, or uh, you just have random stuff that I decided cool to write about.
1: <laughs> I like both of those things. Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. This has been a bunch of fun.
1: This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes. Um, you'll just need to know that now, every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, for the next coming months you're going to have brand spanking new episodes of all the president's minutes in your calendar in your schedule of listening we have a stack of other things happening on one heat minute productions as well every friday australian time a brand new show our seventh season on one heat minute productions is miami nice co-hosted by katie walsh where we go through michael mann's misunderstood masterpiece miami vice one topic one morsel at a time we go all over it it is both a listen along and a watch along podcast um, where we will occasionally drink along while we're talking about it um, so we'd love you to check that out and also on saturday's australian time but friday's us time we still have our amazing increment Vice dropping every single week with host travis woods and an array of amazing and talented guests so check that out get it in your ears if you want to support the show patreon forward slash blake howard that's where all of our one heat minute production support can be but right now in this crazy time of COVID we just love if you could share and recommend the show to anyone who you think would dig it. We have a whole stack of back catalogue things. Nothing is behind a paywall. We have the whole One Heat Minute series. We have Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans. We have contingent episodes, about 20 episodes going through and checking in on folks. Some of those will pop back up in the near future. And also Josie and the Podcasts, a 12-episode limited series going through the 2001 satire the music industry josie and the pussycats um, an episode at the time covering all the way from the inception of the characters through to the legacy of the 2001 film a stack of great episodes hosted by maria lewis um and produced by myself so check that one out as well but this has been another episode of one eight minute productions thank you so much for listening again and if you're still listening what the hell are you doing go listen to the next
0: episode